a British TV podcast with Chrissy and Ryan. News, reviews, what's on TV this week, DVD releases, and special features all about British TV. Hello and welcome to the British TV podcast. It's show number 50. Woohoo. Wow. I don't know if we've got 50 more topics in us or not. We may be doing that guy that was an extra in that movie mm-hmm. feature or something. I don't know. The guy who said, I'm changing, I'm changing in Children of the Gods, right? He was one of the guests on the cruise. Oh, right. <laughs> and now it's the man who says, I'm changing, I'm changing. And in Cruise of the Gods yeah. in Children of Castor. Castor. That's right. Right. I'm changing, I'm changing. When you go on the Doctor Who cruises, is there somebody that obscure who's a guest or do you generally know? Okay. There's no obscurity to Doctor Who fans. Okay. If you've been in Doctor Who, no matter how small your part was, the fans know who you are. Okay. I've seen guys at conventions who played really bit parts like Niter in Genesis of the Daleks. Mm-hmm. And he's a well-known character actor, and he's been in everything. And he did a really mean Frank Sinatra impersonation, too. And he actually was a really interesting guest, because the thing is, the really big-name guests, A, have already told all the really best stories, and B are kind of guarded because they're sort of public figures. Mm-hmm. But the minor people who basically are just working actors have all the best stories and don't care who hears them. Well, cool. So they actually okay. tend to be better guests, although they're not what I call the bums on seat guys. So you only see them at the really large conventions where they can have a headliner and these would be kind of like, and thrown in as so-and-so. Well, I guess the person, if it had been a real show, Children of Castor, the guy who said I'm changing would have been pretty iconic, but it was just funny to me that they identified him as the the man who says I'm changing, I'm changing. Well, yeah, if you're only in the credit <laughs> sequence and then you die, it's, uh, it's that's fairly obscure. But to true fans, nothing is too obscure. Okay. So this week's show, we have reviews, news, what's on TV this week, shows running the United States, DVD releases, and a profile of actor Warren Clark. Somebody at work was talking about, I knew of this actor, and he was maybe Welsh, and he was about 50 years old, and he was this big star, and he also sang, and he couldn't think of his name. So Nancy, who's got an English, her daughter lives in England now, and she's a real Anglophile. We were trying so hard to sting. I mean, we first of all, we thought, okay, he's probably not Welsh. He's probably, but let's, and they finally brought in this CD, Will Robson Green. He was saying, oh, and he's blonde, and I was... So you know who Robson Green is, don't you? Yeah, but we we never got that from what he was the descriptors. I, I don't think of him as a singer primarily, no. and I didn't realize he was Welsh. I don't know if he is or not. <laughs> okay, well he's. But that's what the Scott. But it was so funny, and we were just trying to think. Well, who could it be? It's. Yeah, well, sometimes thinking, you have to name that tune. I get yeah. people asking me things all the time, but yeah, Robson Green's in something we're gonna. It's on this we week. We did not. We did not get. Get him. We were. I was. Stump the chumps. Forty up to about sixty. I was naming everybody I could think of who was English, who acted and sang, but didn't get Robson Green. I, I really thought from everything else he was saying it was Sting, but it wasn't Sting. I would of course guessed uh, Barrowman. Yeah, I put Barrowman down. So it's not Michael Crawford because he's closer to seventy, and it's not huh. so. So we were just going on and on and. Or Tom Jones. Right, but he doesn't act. So you said it was an actor who sings. He acted in Mars Attacks. Oh, okay. <laughs> Did he? Who was he playing? Tom he played Jones? Tom Jones. Yeah, but, I mean, he had dialogue and stuff. I mean, my week was kind of full of work and no not fun. much fun. But it's all work all right. and no play makes Chrissy a dull girl. It is. We are learning a new computer program, which they have us doing via self-graded tests online, which we do in between 
phone calls and doing our regular work. So we're kind of, oh, it's horrible. <laughs> uh, I know. I had uh, to get up a few times and go for a little walk today because my brain was just fried. So, yeah, it was, it's nice to, to I'm off tomorrow and I'm going to just watch a bunch of television because I deserve it. Well, I'll either be editing this podcast or watching some TV or work on my yard before the weather turns again. Oh, we have some reviews. The first is Darren Brown, Hero at 30,000 Feet. The master of misdirection and mind control, whom we profiled back in show 35, was back on the telly last week in a Channel 4 special. As he broadcast live from an airplane hangar, he told us we were about to watch Matt, a young man, through a journey from bystander to take charge hero in 30 days without really knowing he was the subject of the show. The way Brown's introductions were staged, it appeared like events would be happening in real time, although if you thought about it afterwards, you realize that the events, including the climax, must have been done several days earlier. Matt first is subjected to a fake holdup at a gas station where actors hold a gun on him and threaten him. jeez. Being held at gunpoint made Matt start to question his life. Now I want to give him the chance to find answers. So I'm sneaking into his back garden. With the help of Matt's girlfriend, we've hidden cameras and a discreet speaker in his bedroom. He's been asleep for two and a half hours. Matt. Matt. You're having a dream. Now, Matt, you need to get up and get dressed and come outside into the back garden. Get up, get dressed, and come outside. Matt has a suggestible personality, which means by having woken him up and told him he was still asleep, I was able to put him into a dreamlike state, which is perfect for talking to his unconscious mind. I'm going to give him the tools to allow him to subconsciously change the way he looks at himself. Hidden cameras follow Matt's progress as we see his behavior begin to change. He breaks into a policeman's house after finding his wallet, but he also gives a life-changing talk to an actor playing a disgruntled delivery driver. He meets Darren for the first time, but thinks he's just being considered for a game show he might be doing, and ties Matt up in a straitjacket and leaves him on a railroad with an oncoming train approaching. Finally, Fear of Flying Matt is told he has to fly to Jersey to participate in, on a program in a plane full of actors. An emergency is staged, and we find out whether Matt will stand up to help land the airplane. <laughs> now, a lot of people like to call BS on all of Darren Brown's stunts, but either you believe what he's doing on screen or not. And it certainly seems plausible that someone could be nudged ever so slightly to change their core behavior, particularly with the entire resources of a TV production company behind it. I think the suspense in these is really more about whether Brown will fail on national television rather than about whomever the subject of the, this program might be. Because he will put his failures on there, like when he tried to break the casino. and Yeah, that was, was one off. But you have to sort of wonder, they spent three days working with this Matt guy until the big climax on the airplane, and you're kind of wondering that, you know, if it hadn't worked... Did he have another backup guy or something like that? <laughs> and at the end of the program, he starts a clock ticking down for another 30 days. There'll be another special in October. So some unsuspecting person out there. So if you applied to be on one of his shows or something like that, be watching for hidden cameras and 
all your friends and family being in on it. Well, they often place ads and they don't identify themselves either. There was a woman who mentioned she'd gotten a CD from a mail order thing that she read in a magazine, and that turned out to have been, and then you hear in voiceover, Darren said, actually, that was us, and we set, sent, sent these CDs out to thousands of people, blah, blah, blah. So he's always got his little minions out there placing ads here and there and working on several shows in advance, I think. Yeah, so I guess retroactively they get releases from everybody. The second show was Alan Davis's Teenage Revolution. The stand-up comic and QI panelist presents this three-part look at growing up in suburbia in 1980s Britain. Davis trots out numerous home movies and even interviews his dad while taking us through the haunts of his youth. He isn't afraid to tackle issues like the casual racism that existed back then, particularly with Asians moving into the neighborhood, and his run-ins with the local skinhead community. Fortunately, seen through 30 years later as Davis tracks down people he might have wronged or misjudged, all seems forgiven. Good morning. Mr. Shaw. Yeah, that's right. My name's Alan. Well, how are you? I'm very I well. I recognize you. You recognize me? Yeah. <laughs> long time now, ain't it? Yeah, very long time, yeah. yeah. When did you first get the shop? Beginning of 76. We yeah. was the first, first one, one first Asian different. in the Woodford. So how did that make you feel, being the first Asian people? Well, it was a bit struggling. Were you welcomed into the community? Uh, not really. <laughs> <laughs> not really. What were some of the things that they used to say to you? Can you remember? Well, they say, just Pecky, nothing else. Pecky came Something. here, Pecky, go away, we don't want you, like that. Mm-hmm. Lots of times, um, windows broken, our glasses also. Banging on the window, what you and the shutters not, uh, shutters on, open. Yeah. They're banging on the windows. And tell me about the boys who come in the shop. I mean, I was one of those boys. <laughs> they came in the shop and buy the sweets, some of them pinch it. Yeah, I used to be very proud of stealing things. <laughs> I'd say to my friends, look, look what I got. Yeah. Yeah. No, I didn't pay anything. You didn't pay anything. <laughs> So I uh, do apologise for so all the penalties. Right, no problem. At least you enjoy your sweets. <laughs> 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 yeah, it's a bit shocking to realise that Davis, who's just five years younger than me, is going grey already. But unlike some of us, he seems ready and capable to face up to his past. Yeah, do they colour his hair for some of his TV appearances, do you think? I don't know. I don't know. I just sort of shocked. I was like, oh, God, he's got grey hair. I've got the random white ones around the temples here that are annoying me, but... I'll probably just stay in this holding pattern for another 10 years like my mom did before going really gray. Hmm. The next special was Albert's Memorial. David Jason and David Warner star in this ITV comedy drama TV movie about two World War II veterans who've been charged by a recently deceased buddy to take his body for burial in Germany. The buddy was played by Michael Jason. He is well-known to Doctor Who fans as playing the Valyard in Trial of a Time Lord who tried to prosecute Colin Baker. However, Albert's widow wants him cremated instead, so our heroes must steal his corpse, get it across the channel via ferry, and then drive Jason's black cab with the body to its final destination. The result is an amiable road movie with Jason and Warner bickering and reminiscing about a dark chapter from their past that is related to the war. They also pick up a cute German hitchhiker who helps them out of a few scrapes but has an air of mystery about her. Been this way before. Us too. Old hands. Through here like a dose of salt. 
me. It's him, our friend Albert. Such handsome young man. The war. She's bright, you know. Got to watch her. My worst favorite subject. What's that? History. Well, someone like you. I can't believe you got a worst favorite subject. You know why she can't stand history? You know why's that? Because that's what we are. You and me. History. Past it. Though at times it seems the whole enterprise might descend to last of the summer wine slapstick territory, or even weekend at Bernie's, the two leads keep things on an even keel. It's great to see David Warner on television again. He's always been a great presence, and I've loved him ever since time after time in 1979. The denouement is a bit predictable, given glimpses of the trauma the men endured during the war, as well as the temptation to add an unnecessary supernatural element to things. But Albert's memorial is a charming time-passer. I was just thinking um, there was a story today about a old lady who died a pauper. Did you read that in the paper? No. Um, well, my friend at work, the other Anglophile, she said I should buy the rights and adapt it and write a screenplay. But it was she was um, close to 90 years old, and they discovered she'd been a war heroine. She'd gone to France posing as a French shop girl, but she was sending information back to the UK so that they could... Supporting the war effort, and they, she was actually captured and tortured, but didn't break and didn't give any information. And eventually she escaped from a concentration camp and went back to the UK. And then she never really wanted, I mean, she had tons of medals and things, but she never told anybody after that. And so they're going to give her this huge state funeral now, and they're kind of wishing that they'd known before she died they would have liked to have honored her because she was such a heroine. But like many people, they, she just my grandfather, after he came back from the war, he never wanted to talk about it, and he'd been quite heroic too. Your grandfather fought in World War Two. He did. He was a radio man, and he flew over 2,000 combat hours and got shot down three times. So, wow. Yeah, and he wouldn't talk about it afterwards. That was just sort of and done. And he wouldn't, he wouldn't have a gun and he wouldn't, and he really hated commercial flying after that too. He would, he had to do a lot of training for his job in um, New York because he was an engineer for IBM for his, mainly his whole career. And he would drive because he just didn't want to fly after that. Yeah. That woman's incidents there uh, sounds a lot like uh, the plot of Wish Me Luck. Well, it, it will make quite a good story. I think if somebody wants to adapt it. Well, there is a TV series that's very similar to that of uh, British women who served in the French Resistance. She just maintained the whole time she was captured and they were trying half drowning her in ice water and threatening to finish off the job, but she wouldn't break. And she was saying, no, no, I'm French. I'm French. I'm a shop girl. I'm nothing. And, wow. and then got thrown into the concentration camp and escaped. And I actually had a college professor who was in the Danish Resistance and got caught and put in a camp and he escaped too, so... He was young and strong, and so was she, and I thought that helped him. And also, I think it was, in both instances, it was near the end of the war, so they were moving prisoners around, and that's mm. how they were able to get away. Yeah, my family's a little out of sync generationally, because my grandfather was too young to be in World War One, and then my dad was too young to be in World War Two. Mm-hmm. so nobody fought in the big wars. And then there was School of Comedy, and... <laughs> <laughs> In the futuristic society shown in the movie Logan's Run, everyone over 30 was killed. In the book, it was 21. And the world is run by youths. It probably would look a lot like School of Comedy, where the gimmick is all the parts in the risque sketches are played by teenagers doing adult roles. 
A little bit goes a long way, and the annoying laugh track made me think I was watching one of those kid sketch shows from Nickelodeon in the 1980s, or some of the sitcoms on the Disney Channel, just with more swearing and inappropriate behavior. Some of the young actors are fairly good. I particularly like the Welsh girl who played a bitter blind woman who's always berating her husband. But overall, I couldn't quite see the point of the series. Sounds kind of like the reverse of that show that was a few years ago about where all the adult actors played the um, kindergartners putting on a nativity play. I think it was called Fleet Street Nativity. I haven't seen it, but I've heard of it. Uh, it was Well, there had, were some big names in it. There was Frank Skinner, Stephen Tompkinson. Um, Neil Morrissey was excellent in it. And Julia Swalla, Jane Horrocks, Josie Lawrence. I mean, but they're all playing five-year-olds and they all have enormous props. So if they're going through the teacher's purse, you know, they pull out her little feminine protection and it's about a foot long, you know, or else they're climbing in great big chairs. And it was very weird. And then at the end of it, you see them all playing the parents of these children that they've been playing the whole show. This kind of thing, to me, would work really well on the stage Mm -hmm. because everything is sort of make-believe in a play. You know, like that? Well, Bugsy Malone had two things going for it. One is the fact that it was a period piece. Mm Mm-hmm. And then the whole pie thing that was going on there. I mean, some it, it worked for some people. I mean, other people think it's a goofy, gimmicky movie. In, in a play, I would accept that sort of thing, like adults playing kids and stuff like that. But when it's for television, where you expect a slightly higher level of realism, it just seems odd. Well, Bugsy Malone started as a stage play, and it's still pretty beloved over in the UK as a stage play. They do it in schools a lot. Oh, I thought that was a movie. It was a movie. I mean, I thought that it was, was just a, written no, as a movie. No, it was, it was based on a stage play, which is still done a lot overseas um in schools especially because you know there's the kids are the right age and then they get to play gangsters and grown-ups and sing should i throw something on youtube that has a clip of this and a clip of fleet street nativity and then people can see if they like adults playing children or children playing adults they vote (laughs) well i just remember neil morrissey being so excellent in that because his little boy character had a speech impediment and they'd make fun of him and he went outside and sat on a swing and bawled his head off and he really looked like a five-year-old here's this grown man you know he threw himself into that part and then at the end, he kind of works out a way around saying frankincense during the play so that he does he won't lisp and get made fun of. And it's very cute. Well, at least you have the advantage there. You actually have stars. I mean, the kind of the point mm-hmm. of School of Comedy is, is to create stars or give people a training ground for acting, which is fine. But again, I'm not sure you really want to put it on television. But we'll see. News. PBS's Masterpiece announces their fall schedule. Starting October 3rd will be the second season of Wallander with Kenneth Branagh as the Swedish detective. October 23rd, as we've mentioned before, will be the American premiere of Sherlock, the modernization starring Benedict Cumberbatch and Martin Freeman. That is making the rounds now of uh, the PBS station where I work, and they're trying to think, see if they can actually pledge for it, and if they could get a premium or something, if it would work. So I don't know if it they can do that with something masterpiece that quickly, but... They'd be smart to do it because yeah. it's going to be big. A friend of mine mm-hmm. called me up from Los Angeles and he'd gotten his hands on a, on a download of it and he was you know, going on and on about it. Yes, yes, I've seen it, I've seen it. It's a great show. It's going to be big here. November 14th sees Trevor Eve and Eve Miles in the comedy drama Framed about a art invading a small Welsh village. I've seen that. And November 21st will be Christopher Eccleston's turn as John Lennon in Lennon Naked that ran on BBC4 earlier this year in the UK. No, I've got that, and I, I've only watched the first few minutes of it, and it wasn't grabbing me, but some Beatles-loving fans, friends of mine, just 
went crazy for it and thought it was amazing and wonderful. They're Doctor Who fans too, so they liked that. I saw bits of it, and a lot of it was sort of the quest for the father. And mm-hmm. but other people thought that Exton was way too old to be playing Lennon. So, but he's a good actor. I think he's worth mm-hmm. you know. You, you keep your eyes on Chris Eccleston whenever he's on screen, no matter what part he's playing. So people can watch for themselves. Fox is trying its hand at a remake of BBC's Outnumbered about middle-class parents whose kids say the darnest things offspring cause never-ending embarrassment. This is the second attempt to Americanize the series after a pilot in 2007 did not get picked up. So the remakes, they keep a-coming. And they're trying to remake the IT crowd again, too, aren't they? Yeah, we announced that a couple weeks ago. Yeah. Well, I was always sad Joel McHale didn't get to be in it. but uh, He's got his own series now. That's true. It's nice to see him doing well, because when he was an acting student at the UW, he was on a local show in Seattle called Almost Live, so you can still see a lot of his funnier clips on that on YouTube. Seattle Boy makes good. Mm -hmm. What's on TV for the week of September 15th to the 21st? Wednesday, Bang Goes the Theory continues on BBC One, followed by the school drama Waterloo Road. Thursday, BBC Four dramatizes the Road to Coronation Street and the struggle series creator Tony Warren had launching the landmark series on ITV 50 years ago. Interesting, the BBC is showing it. This will be having its 50th anniversary in December and we'll probably do a big feature about it then. Channel Four continues Alan Davis's teenage revolution about his growing up in the 1980s. Law & Order UK continues on ITV1. The topical news panel show Mock the Week continues on BBC2. Celebrity Juice continues on ITV2. Yes, and not Celebrity Jews, like it might have sounded like I said last mm-hmm. week. <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> David Bedell. Um... <laughs> yeah, I was thinking quite a few of those. He'd be the host, yeah. The King is Dead continues on BBC3, this week looking for a new monarch. Friday, QI is back on BBC One, hurrah, for the H series. Stephen Fry hosts the creme de la creme of celebrity panel shows, as we have mentioned many, many times in the past. Alan Davis co-stars with guests this week, Phil Jupitus, Ross Noble, and good old Jack D. They made poor Stephen Fry do an embarrassing photo shoot for the Radio Times. They had to give him a tweed jacket, and he's riding a motorcycle, and they had to do a bunch of poses with a hedgehog, and it's just... How's he look? Because, you know, he lost all that weight, and then I was sort of thinking he was starting to creep right back on again. But it's hard to say because some of these things get taped months ago. The photo shoot was probably fairly recent. Mm-hmm. He, looked, he looked good. He looked good, yeah. Yeah, I mean, he's Stephen Fry. <laughs> Let's wait something he's talked about a lot. And I know he was really big on low carb for a while. and you So there's got to be something to it if that great big brain thinks it's a good idea. I know I do pretty well on low-carb, too, actually. If you're kind of crazy with the insulin production, it's a good way to eat. Chrissy's diet tips right in the middle here of the podcast. (laughs) Sure, why not? (laughs) New Tricks continues on BBC One on Friday. And ITV One continues with Paul O'Grady live. The Rob Brydon Show premieres on BBC Two. The star of Gavin and Stacey gets his own chat show. It's not the first time, although his previous series was done in his Keith Barrett persona from Marion and Jeff. The guests on the first show will be David Williams, Sir Tom Jones, and Tom Deacon. We did a feature on Rob Brydon back in show 37. It's followed on BBC One with the Rob Brydon hosted Would I Lie to You, 
with a compilation show of unseen material from the series. 8 Out of 10 Cats continues on Channel 4, the poll-based panel show hosted by Jimmy Carr. And a repeat of last week's The Inbetweeners makes its terrestrial debut on Channel 4 afterwards. The same episode on E4 Monday garnered 2.5 million viewers, the highest original program rating for the digital channel. Its highest ever show was an episode of Friends that they were showing. (laughs) So yeah, 2.5 million was only beat by the BBC News at 10. So people love The Inbetweeners. Well, Saturday afternoon, Shelf Stackers continues on BBC Two. Walk on the Wild Side is back on BBC One. It takes nature footage and dubs funny voices over the animals. <laughs> a little goes a long way, but some of it is quite funny. You see the one with the gopher or whatever just shouting? No. Though there's there's a guy on YouTube that does awfully funny ones with his, his foul-mouthed cat, but I haven't seen it on British doing something like that. This is on at 6 o'clock, so it's obviously going to be suitable for families, mm-hmm. but it, it's fairly cute. And Merlin continues on BBC One. Michael McIntyre's Comedy Roadshow is back for a second season on BBC One, this time in Glasgow, with performances including Kevin Bridges and Chrissy favorite Milton Jones. I do like Milton Jones. He's almost even sort of kind of a pen pal of mine because I once wrote to him that our group here in Seattle had liked a show he did 10 years ago, and he wrote back, how did you see that? Because I haven't seen the whole thing. So I ended up sending him via his agent a copy of it, and he sent me his CD that had just come out. But even before that, years earlier, we, we had had a friend in common, and that Milton found out through me that I'd really liked watching him in my long trip there in 99, and he was kind of stoked because he didn't think an American would get his comedy, so he sent me some tapes. And you can download all his stuff um, on Amazon or audible.com. They're really, really funny. He, he hasn't made a lot of leaps to television with his own vehicles, although he's showing up more and more as panels panelists and sketch comedy but his radio shows are great alexander armstrong's in a lot of them and you can download them for a song so i highly recommend that and it's also the other thing that's kind of funny is i put a clip of him right after he won the perrier newcomer award which i think it was the first year that that award was created it wasn't the big huge one but it was they created an award for the people who are making their debut at Edinburgh and he won it and so he got to do a big benefit for some Liverpool dockers along with all the big names of the day and and I put that I had a clip of that so I put it on YouTube because it wasn't up there and I've noticed that for some weird reason a lot of people who are watching it are in Argentina so I don't know do the Welsh all go to Argentina to retire or something because or is it just an aberration? But I was going to write him and tell him if he wants to semi-retire with his missus someday where it's warm, he can move to Argentina and still have a local following. I remember mostly from the science fiction sketch comedy show Planet Mirth from, mm-hmm. the, from the 90s. Yeah, he was funny on that. He's been around a while. I have a comedy magazine from 96 that had a picture and an article with him. And he has three kids that were just little at the time. But now they're all in their teenage years and he they sell him jokes now. <laughs> <laughs> That's how they make extra pocket money is thinking up jokes for dad. That's Milton Jones. Mm-hmm. Saturday, BBC Two is showing the latest Peter Morgan drama, The Special Relationship, which originally ran on HBO earlier this year. Michael Sheen again plays Tony Blair, this time examining his relationship with President Bill Clinton in the 1990s. 
Well, I like Michael Sheen, but he, he is getting a lot of mileage out of doing a good Tony Blair, isn't he? Peter Morgan is saying he's going to be a fourth one. Mm-hmm. He figures that the, the book is not closed on Tony Blair yet, so watch for that. Sunday, the late Alan Plater wrote Joe Madison's War, a TV movie on ITV1 starring Kevin Waitley as a shipyard worker who joins the Home Guard in 1939 as the war breaks out. This also stars Robson Green, Derek Jacoby, and Melanie Hill. I'm going to watch it. Oh, yeah. That yeah. sounds good. Yeah. Sounds like something my mom and grandma would have watched together back in the day. Mm. BBC One counters with its own World War II programming, The Battle of Britain, presented by Ewan McGregor and his pilot brother Colin, who learn about the RAF's defense of Britain against Germany and do some flying themselves in vintage Spitfires and Hurricanes. Hey, I wonder if Eddie Izzard's uh, flying one of the planes because that's been his goal for years. Yeah, I remember you told a, me that it was really... a contemporary tra- plane, but it takes an awful lot of extra training to fly one of the old ones. As part of this program, Colin has three days to learn how to ride a Spitfire. Mm-hmm. But he's an RAF pilot, so... Right. Well, they were... Eddie's talked about it on talk shows, and he said, you know, he can he can fly the new planes... And if you, he was in a Spitfire and that he could make it go straight, but he probably couldn't do anything else. He has to find the chunks of time to set aside to actually learn it because it, it takes a lot of uh, muscle as well as just knowing an awful lot about this old piece of equipment. Probably easier if you're a full-time pilot yeah. in the military. Monday, sp- <laughs> My voice went out there. Spooks is back for its ninth season with Richard Armitage, still alive and kicking, and joined this year by Sophia Miles. Will any of them make it to the end of the season? Tune in and find out. Wasn't she doing an American show? She was in Moonlight, got canceled, oh. and now the lead of that. He was in something last year, and now he's going to be in the Hawaii Five-O remake. Oh. But yeah, she Sophia is back in England. And uh, back on Spooks, which we know as MI5 here. She's an awfully pretty lady. Yes, she Fans is. Fans of pretty ladies. I always thought she was kind of the blonde, blue-eyed flip of the coin of Catherine Zeta-Jones in terms of just feminine loveliness. Hmm. Very symmetric, you know, very much like an artist's rendition of a pretty lady would be. And she was in the Doctor Who episode, The Girl in the Fireplace. Mm-hmm. The hilarious and popular The Inbetweeners continues on E4 on Monday. ITV1 concludes the drama Bouquet of Barbed Wire. Him and Her with Russell Tovey continues on BBC3. Have you seen those yet? Nope. Nope. Okay. School of Comedy continues on E4. Tuesday, I Deal with Johnny Vegas continues on BBC3. Channel 4 continues This is England, 86. In the United States, on BBC America, Friday, there is a repeat of the Top Gear Polar Special and James May on the Moon. Yes, in the Polar Special, they actually are the first people to drive to the North Pole. They're in the Guinness Book of World Records for it, and they have a little documentary film about it. It's actually very interesting. Saturday, the second season of Being Human concludes with many changes afoot, and there's also Graham Norton. Top Gear is on Monday. The Independent Film Channel go back to the very beginnings of the IT crowd on Tuesday. On Adult Swim on Friday night, the Mighty Boosh is at 1 a.m., followed by Garth Marenghi's Dark Place. On PBS's Masterpiece Mystery on Sunday, there's new episodes of Lewis. DVD releases. Deal and Pasco, Season 2, 
Colin Buchanan and Warren Clark star as somewhat mismatched police detective inspectors. We'll have a feature on Warren Clark coming up next. Judge John D. Season 2, another detective series, this time starring former professional Martin Shaw as a crusading judge fighting crime. Does he wear the wig when he's out there fighting crime? No, he takes the wig off. Uh. Lark Rise to Candleford, Season 3, the charming family drama set in two small villages in the 19th century, is available. Robin Hood, the complete series box set, is the recent BBC version starring Jonas Armstrong, Keith Allen, and Richard Armitage. Some fans hated it for its goofy anachronisms, but Ryan liked the music and its swashbuckling spirit. I'm easy to please. And Sherlock Holmes, the complete 1964 series, starred Douglas Wilmer and Nigel Stock, which ran on the BBC. And probably very unlike an execution to the recent 2010 version starring Benedict Cumberbatch as you could possibly get. To commemorate the DVD release of Deal on Pasco, our feature this week is on actor Warren Clark. If you watch enough British TV as I do, you begin to wonder if there are only a handful of the same actors who appear in nearly every show. Can anyone care to name a series Brian Blessed hasn't appeared in? Life on Mars. Okay, that's true. (laughs) He wasn't in that. Part of this, of course, is because an actor is so talented and perfect for a part that nobody else would be suitable. And if you have a part for a middle-aged, slightly over-the-hill, working-class northerner who thinks with his wits but may or may not be the smartest man on the planet... Who are you going to call but Warren Clark? Warren Clark is one of that breed of character actors who has graduated to starring parts, but still often raises the question, where have I seen him in before? He got his professional start playing not one, but two different parts in Coronation Street in the 1960s. Americans would have had their first chance to see him in Stanley Kubrick's 1971 film, A Clockwork Orange, when he appeared as one of Alex's droogs. Even then, his large body was put to comic effect, but always maintaining an edge of menace. And while Americans could watch his performance in A Clockwork Orange, audiences in Britain weren't so lucky as Kubrick himself banned the film from being shown there for decades. Now remember, even in the 1990s, there was a a substantial industry of pirated copies that were smuggled in for the curious to watch until after Kubrick's death. Clark's early TV appearances included SOS Titanic, Tinker Tailor's Soldier Spy, Masada, and The Jewel in the Crown. Frequently cast as a Russian or German, bit parts in movies like Hitler's SS Portrait in Evil, Firefox, and Top Secret soon followed. In 1988, he appeared in a special comic relief episode of Blackadder as Oliver Cromwell in The Cavalier Years. Right, Baldrick, I'm off to answer the call of nature. If by any freak chance Oliver Cromwell drops in here for a cup of milk in the next 90 seconds, remember, the king is not hiding here. Yes, sir. Green sleeves is not... Good evening, citizen. I am Oliver Cromwell. My men have surrounded your house, and I am looking for royalist scum. Is the king hiding here? Um. (laughs) No. 
on pain of death and damnation. Are you absolutely sure? Yes, I am. <laughs> I see. Well, then, my proud beauty, you won't mind if my men come in from the cold, will you? Men, come in from the cold, will you? <laughs> now, we should all have a cup of milk by your fireside. All right, but don't touch the purple cup. Why not? That's the king's. <laughs> and that's available as part of the Black Adder Remastered Ultimate Edition, available on DVD from all fine retailers. In 1988, Warren Clark played yet another German in the espionage series Wish Me Luck, about female resistance fighters during World War II. And finally, in 1989, he had his first starring role in Nice Work. He played Vic Wilcox, a Midlands business executive who, as part of a training scheme, is shadowed in his job by a young woman. Despite their being complete opposites in just about everything, she ends up sleeping with him during the convention. For her, it's just an opportune one-night stand, but Vic, of course, thinks that they now have a relationship. Two years later, Clark starred in the hilarious Sleepers along with Nigel Havers, both playing deep-cover Soviet operatives planted in Britain in the mid-60s and then completely forgotten about until the Iron Curtain falls. But their training was so good, and they've been playing their roles for so long, that they are now more British than the British. But everyone's afraid what, what might happen if the proper signal is activated and they attempt to complete their mission. Thought they'd forgotten all about us. Oh, God, they haven't. Oh, hi. I mean, they're taking the time, that's all. Yeah. Hardly touched me breakfast. I'm famished. I could murder a balm cake. Tell me, what have you done with the transmitter? Send me back. I signed for it. You know what they're like. Yeah, indeed. I reckon they'll send us back home. Well, I hope so. I've had this country up to here. <sighs> By the way, how did you get my number? Well, it wasn't easy. I knew your alias, and I knew you lived in a place down south. Ah. Luckily, it's not all that common a name. I eventually dragged the list out of directory inquiries. Five years of secret training, 20-odd years hibernation, and you get my number from Directory Inquiries. <laughs> Superb, isn't it? Did you write it down anywhere? I may be rusty, Sergei, but I am a trained agent. Yeah. Produced by Verity Lambert, this miniseries soon appeared on Masterpiece Theatre here in America. Did you ever see, see Sleepers? Mm-mm. Oh, it was very cute. Clark then did two series for Tony Grounds, 1991's Gone to the Dogs, where he played a vulgar but rich greyhound owner, and 1992's Gone to Seed, where he, Alison Stedman, and Jim Broadbent played triplets trying to save their deceased mother's property from developers. In 1994, he took over a part originated by another Warren, Warren Mitchell, who's most famous for playing Alf Garnet on Till Death Us Do Part, the precursor to Archie Bunker, in Moving Story, which ran for two seasons on ITV. The series focused on the dramatic misadventures of a team of movers who each week got embroiled in some drama, usually involving their clients. Wearing round, tiny glasses, a goofy mustache, white gloves, and a bowler hat, Clark served as the father figure to the young men working with him, all the while honing his trivial pursuit skills in hopes of appearing on the quiz show Mastermind someday. In that same year, he appeared in the ITV comedy series The House of Windsor as the scheming power behind the throne who knows all the secrets in the royal household. 
Though still loyal to his working-class roots, Clark here perfected his all-knowing man-of-the-people part that he's most famous for. In a similar vein, in the drama Giving Tongue, he played a small but pivotal part as a clerk in the House of Lords who explains to a young apprentice, and to the audience, just how the Lords works, or doesn't, with the House of Commons in drafting laws. In 1996, he finally played a title role as Andy Deal in adaptations of Reginald Hill's series of books about northern detectives Deal and Pasco. Constantly mocking and showing up his college-educated partner Pasco, Clark is perfectly cast as the Fat Controller, as Pasco's wife refers to him, almost jealous with the amount of time and attention her husband gives him. You know, the Fat Controller, of course, is a reference to Thomas the Tank Engine. Clark, as always, exudes character with every look and line, delivering each one with perfection. What's up with you? Look like you've slept under a hedge. A rhododendron bush. Your sexual aberrations are your business, Peter. Waiting for a gang of housebreakers who failed to keep their appointment. You can't rely on criminals these days. What are you doing this morning? Finishing my coffee, writing a short report on our wasted night, going home and having a sleep. Add to that list, seeing Dick Elgood. Who's Dick Elgood? Came up from Nout. Sharp, influential, not short of a bob or two. Bit of a lad. He's had more women than you've had rhododendron bushes. And I owe him a favour. You owe him the favour. I have to see him. I've told him you're good, so do your best. Alan Platter wrote the script of that story, Deadheads, based on the novels by Reginald Hill. And as we mentioned earlier, that story and others of season two of Deal and Pasco are now available in the U.S. on DVD. In the 1997 miniseries The Locksmith, Clark played a tormented man whose ex-wife is nearly killed in a robbery and who goes over the top to catch the man responsible, while at the same time trying to resume relations with his estranged hippie daughter. John Zim was in that. The amount of anguish Clark conveys is genuine, and you really feel his anger, sense of retribution, and finally remorse as he goes through his inevitable actions. It was a superb series where Clark really delivered in his pivotal starring role. In 1998, in addition to returning in more Deal and Pasco stories, Clark appeared in A Respectable Trade as a Bristol-based slave trader who marries a woman above his station but who ultimately leads to his downfall, not comprehending how society is so rigidly constructed to keep people like him from crossing class lines. Clark brought a necessary compassion to the part of Josiah Cole, whose affinity for the sea is genuine but whose hands are ultimately tainted by blood. And in a change of pace... With In the Red, a comedy about politics and the BBC, Clark played a drunken radio journalist who gets the story of a lifetime when a serial killer is on the loose, but manages to survive both the killer and BBC politics on his instincts and street sense. In the 2000 movie Greenfingers, Clark played the no-nonsense but sympathetic warden of an alternative prison in a fact-based movie about prisoners who become prize-winning gardeners. And he appeared on TV with Pauline Quirk in Down to Earth, about a family that picks up and moves to a small farm in the country. Although later the entire cast was changed out, and <laughs> but the show kept running. In 2008, he teamed up with Anthony Head and Dean Lennox Kelly for the comedy drama The Invisibles, about a team of jewel thieves who were big in the 1960s, but now it's the 21st century and they're all getting a bit long in the tooth. By the way... Uh... Just so you know, I haven't told him everything. What do you mean? About me and Janet. 
that we were engaged. That I bumped into her again. I don't want him worrying. Why would he? Well, if she moves in, can I still keep on the couch? That kind of thing. Because it is an issue. It's a one-bedroom flat. She'd need more privacy. Have you been hitting the honey nut loose? You're right. See how it goes. Don't rush things. Enjoy the drive. Then tell him tonight. <laughs> and anyway, I don't want to just uh, drop a bombshell on him, do I? Sid, are you sure you're doing the right thing? What do you mean? You and Janet. It was a long time ago and you were both a lot less set in your ways. It didn't exactly work out then, did it? You're never too old to fall in love. And anyway, with age comes wisdom. That can only help our relationship. You see, we've left the trivial superficialities that worry younger people far behind. So, um, what do you think? Do the checks in this jacket make me look chunky? It was often goofy. Much of the humor was the back-and-forth arguing of Head and Clark. They were like an old married couple, but it was slick and enjoyable. In 2009, Clark appeared in the Red Riding Trilogy, playing a corrupt police official in Yorkshire. He was a fearful presence, and many characters fell afoul to him before it was over. Yeah, you've watched that all the way through, right? No, just the first two parts. I oh, okay. the last one. Clark never really gets his comeuppance in that show. Mm-hmm. You kind of wonder how they ever did clean up the uh, Yorkshire constabulary there, because it was so corrupt. Warren Clark continues to create a tremendous stable of memorable characters, each unique but each endowed with his dynamic personality. His name in the credits is always a sign of quality entertainment and time well spent. With his working class ethos and sense of decency in all his parts, he is my acting hero. Next week, Top Gear is back on BBC America with all new episodes, and in a shameless attempt to boost our download numbers, we'll be jumping on the Top Gear bandwagon in show 51. And I have a homework assignment for Chrissy, a copy of Season 9's Top Gear in America to watch. And I'll be interviewing superfan Doris, who knows all about the series. Meanwhile, we'd like you to go to our website, www.britishtvpodcast.com, and there you can find links to headlines, show notes, what's on TV this week, and an archive of our previous 49 shows. And if you have any comments or suggestions or feedback, you can email them to us at feedback at britishtvpodcast.com or you can visit our Facebook page. So the fall season is continuing to gear up here and I'm looking forward to Mm -hmm. a lot more shows. A few shows are finishing up and new ones are coming down the pike. So it's all very exciting. Well, thanks for listening, everybody, and we'll see you next week. We will indeed. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.